Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about Theodore Sturgeon's science fiction short story, first published in 1953, The World Well Lost. Before we get started, we have some content warnings for this episode. Period typical homophobia in both fiction and reality, and a brief mention of fictional incest. There are also mentions of the threat of gun violence, as well as mentions of sex. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So, often on this show, I start with the origins of the story, and then move on to analysing the text. But this time around, I decided I'm going to summarise the story, and then we can discuss that first, before we discuss the author and the context into which the story was published. Um, So I'm going to give a summary of this story, but also the whole thing is only 17 pages, it's great, it's very readily available online, so I'd highly recommend pausing this episode, giving it a read yourself, and then coming back. I would second that. So, welcome back. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The World Well Lost is a short story focused on the wondrous arrival and traumatic extradition of a pair of alien refugees known as the Loverbirds. The arrival of these aliens in a futuristic human society where space exploration is widespread and aliens are commonly interacted with is not unexpected. The initial reaction by humanity is of delight, as the aliens are clearly in love and futuristic forms of media display their affection across the globe. However, it is soon discovered that the aliens are from the planet Durbanu, which inexplicably turned its back on humanity after cursory initial contact years before. The diplomatic silence is broken by the Dabanu, who bluntly demand the return of the Loverbirds, who they call fugitive criminals. Earth's government elects to comply with the demand, hoping to profit from the cooperation. They dispatch a two-person crew to escort the imprisoned Loverbirds in a faster-than-light ship, the arrogant womanizer Root and the hulking, taciturn Grunty. We are told that Root and Grunty have been consistently the best-performing team among all astronauts. Grunty, who barely communicates out loud, but whose internal monologue reveals an eloquent poetry fan, understood this bond, and the fact that the only way it could conceivably be broken would be to explain it to Roots. The voyage from Earth to the Dabanu home planet involves several jumps through space, after which humans are knocked unconscious for a period of a few hours. Grunty is unusually quick to wake up, perhaps due to his physical stature, while Root takes much longer. This gives Grunty small periods entirely to himself during each voyage, a blissful period for him where he often reads books and recites poetry in his head. On this trip, his treasured time is interrupted by the Loverbirds, who he realises by their reaction to him are telepathic. This terrifies Grunty, who has some secret, spoilers, he's gay, (laughs) that he believes too horrifying to even risk the chance these Dubanu would pass it on to their home planet, and from there it would become known on Earth. Grunty resolves to kill the Dubanu, stealing Root's advanced gun after the next jump, as he knows it will leave no trace of murder, and they can pretend the Loverbirds died due to side effects of the jump propulsion system. However, when he opens the door to their compartment, the Loverbirds immediately and urgently try to communicate with him, showing him a series of pictures they've drawn. The pictures illustrate that although the two Durbanu exhibit some dimorphic physical characteristics that Earth had interpreted to mean they were of different genders, they are in fact both, if mapped onto a human understanding of gender, men, and the Durbanu equivalent of women look far more different from their men than do any humans from each other. This revelation unravels several mysteries at once. Grunty quickly pieces together that the Loverbirds are gay, that the Dubanu, like Earth, are homophobic, that the Dubanu find humanity disgusting because they perceive human men and women to all be the same gender and therefore in exclusively homosexual relationships, 
And finally, that the Dubanu escaped to Earth specifically because they misunderstood it as a place that was accepting of gay relationships. Instead of killing the Loverbirds, Grunty allows them to take the ship's lifeboat and escape to try and find a life among the stars. When Roots awakes, he's initially furious at Grunty for setting the aliens loose. Once Grunty shows him the drawings and he realizes the Loverbirds were gay, he interprets Grunty's actions as being driven by a desire to avoid Roots rashly murdering them, which cools his fury as he respects Grunty's ingenuity. The Dubanu happily accept the crew's story that the Loverbirds died and refuse any further contact with Earth. The story ends with Grunty, once again alone with his thoughts as Roots lies unconscious. He ends the story watching his captain's unconscious face and says to himself, Why must we love where the lightning strikes and not where we choose? And then, but I'm glad it's you, little prince. I'm glad it's you. He puts out a hand and strokes the sleeping lips of Roots. And that's the whole story. Um, Yeah, it took us about as long to recount it. It would have taken you to read it. So (laughs) if we did that. (laughs) I know you can just skip this section. Yeah. Yeah, so... I really enjoyed this story. What did you two think of it? I thought it was goddamn incredible. (laughs) (laughs) It had everything. What what boxes did it tick? It had bird-like aliens. I don't really understand how they were bird-like, but I liked that they definitely were. (laughs) Um, It had gay stuff. It had homoerotic captain and secondary officer dynamics. It had one of my favorite sci-fi tropes, which is our way of traveling, you know, interstellar is technically impossible, but we just pretend it's not and it works. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was very good. I like that they kind of went on this little tangent to try and explain the interstellar travel, and it made no sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, deliberately. It was yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah, like, it was, it was well done, but, like, it didn't make any sense, and it wasn't meant to make sense. Yeah, and I like that it was explicitly, like, we have a totally normal, normal, by the context of sci-fi, like, faster than light travel, but it's just, like, too expensive, so we do this one that knocks everyone out instead, because yeah. of plot reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought yeah. that was great. Um, I thought the prose was, like, very good. Mm, it had, yeah. like, a lot of panache to it that I just really, really enjoyed. Like, there were a lot of times where I stopped and was just, like, rereading a particular line because his wording was great. Mm, um, mm. I also liked that he called the Durbanu, or people I can't remember, mm. but he used the phrase featherless bipeds. I thought that was a sick Diogony shout-out. Oh, yeah, he used that for the Durbanu because they're bird-like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of the prose, so I legit had to look up like that last line of like, why must we love where the lightning strikes and not where we choose, and was like, oh, I assume that's a quote from another poet. Mm. Yeah. No, that, that was just him. Mm. Oh, because like he has quotes from other poems throughout, but Absolutely. he does usually credit them. Like he He's does, usually yeah. like actively like Grunty thought this is the credit because like Grunty Grunty thinks- provides a convenient mental footnote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. I, I quite like that as a little like um, little character trait of Grunty's that he always credits the poet. I did like Just that. Just in case any aliens are telepathically listening, or like <laughs> look this up in their spare time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Grunty's like I can't not cite my sources. Yeah, mm, I respect but- Grunty. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there were a few times like that where he, like, he was talking about, uh, like, whenever humans saw the Loverbirds and how they would just have their minds blown by how, like, mm. beautiful and gay the Loverbirds were. I mean, mm. you know, not gay to their Beautiful knowledge, and in love. Beautiful mm. and in love the Loverbirds were. And he was like, you know, whenever people saw them, like, their next movement would be a tiptoe and their next word would be a whisper and stuff mm. like that. I was just like, ooh, mm. top notch. Um, I also thought the way he introduced Roots and Grunty was, like, quite reminiscent of the way that Victor Hugo introduced characters to me. <laughs> Like, he had this line about how Grunty, like, should have been wearing, like, a monk's habit with the like, oh, rope yeah. around his waist, and I was like, yeah, chef's yeah, kiss. Yeah. Love it. I did like Grunty overall as a character. I thought it was, like, very interesting, like, the way he has Grunty have, like, this whole inner world that's going on, but outside he comes across as this stereotypical kind of, like, a large guy who doesn't talk much, 
And I thought it was interesting. It also reminded me of what I've read of like nonverbal autistic people kind of describing how they experience the world. And like, yeah, it's all going on in my head, but I can't necessarily voice it. This is absolutely, yeah, definitely something I thought as well. You know, as someone who is quite extroverted, mm. and I just kind of say everything that goes through my head. <laughs> You know, I definitely, growing up, didn't have enough respect for people who were just a bit quieter and was, oh, would yeah. sort of be like, oh, that person's not that interesting. And it's only been sort of as I've come to understand how people work a little better that yeah. I've come to have a lot more affection for people like Grunty, who kind of, you know, have these rich inner world. And, you know, like, if you actually take the time to be friends with them, then you can draw that out and you can really get interesting experiences out of talking to people like that. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and apparently some good sex, probably. <laughs> Roger seems like he would be an excellent lover. Definitely better than Roots. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Roots is, I mean, I don't think, like, canonically a bad lover, but, like, canonically a bad lover. Yeah, yeah, not explicitly, but definitely in the vibe of how Sturgeon writes him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, that story is, as described, quite gay. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's just gay. Mm. And it's very noticeable that the author makes no attempt to make the gay allegorical or in any way deniable. Mm. Like, the aliens are gay, they're gay in a way that is directly referred to as gay in the way that humans are gay. He draws mm. you a diagram for how gay they are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The societies are explicitly compared in their homophobia, and then, like, on top of all that, the protagonist of the story is himself gay. Literally every character is gay. <laughs> That's true, like, there are four characters. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Beyond that, it is additionally notable that the gays in this story get endings that are ambiguous to positive rather than mm. negative, and that the narrative supports them. The appearance of the Loverbirds is described with joy and wonder, as Eli has already alluded to, and their betrayal by Earth's government is described as a denial of nature and the will of the people, as well as literally being an act of blindness. Um, that is described with, like, dripping contempt by the narrator. And again, like, fantastic prose. Mm, mm. Uh, like, it's very succinct, but there's just, like, so much in those few lines. Mm. Read it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Roots is obnoxious and unlikable. Beyond that, he's also ill-informed, with Grunty believing him to have simply never considered his sexuality and wondering if his tales of sexual exploits merely cover up the lack of intimacy and romance he feels from a lack of understanding himself. So I thought that was, like, quite nuanced and mm. interestingly mm. done. Mm. Yeah. And I do think it's quite, like, I don't know how you guys felt about Roots. Like, obviously we've talked about how he's objectively a pretty bad guy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I do think it's pretty remarkable from just, like, a writing craft perspective that the author managed to convey a nuanced enough perspective of him in this short amount of pages that mm. also have a lot of plot points to cover mm. that like i don't like dislike him as a character like you fully understand how he works and yeah yeah like i feel a lot of not like pity but you know like sympathy mm. and yeah. empathy for where he's at in life yeah good job ted and then you know the loverbirds end the story at worst drifting in space for years as roots describes with sadistic relish but which grunty later recalls with what can only be described as gay yearning <laughs> um, there's a lot of yearning in this story and you know there's a path forward for them in the rim stars presented by the story mm. so like mm. you know it's sort of ambiguous but like basically the worst case scenario is that they get to be together which seems to be like incredibly mm. important to them and it does explicitly note and i don't like quite understand how this works or if it explained it that they're not going to starve yeah yeah mm. it does specifically like, I, don't, say I don't really know why but like they can't starve in their little 
lifeboat thing they're in. Yeah. So So at worst, it will just be the two of them floating through the universe for the rest of their lives. And, like, they're demonstrably just, like, incredibly, like, enraptured with each other. Like, they're not going to be upset if that's their lives. Yeah. And then, finally, to Grunty himself, he ends the story kind of as he starts it, in a bit of stasis Mm. in terms of his sexuality and how he can express it. But in the context of an intensely homophobic society that's presented in the story... He has managed to carve out a private space for his sexuality, however small, and where that could easily have been portrayed as pathetic, it's instead written really tenderly, and like mm. it's a very noble ending mm. for yeah. Bronte. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, again, as Eli's already mentioned, the fact that in 17 pages you got to the end of that and this person remaining in the closet and just sort of you know, having what would in most contexts be a sad ending, and it is a sad mm. situation. But it's still, like, it's a, yeah, it's a noble ending for him as a character. Yeah, yeah. One thing I wondered about Grunty, just on the note of him kind of having found that space for himself, and that space is kind of represented in some part as, like, the time he gets to himself after each light speed jump where Roots is knocked out and Grunty wakes up sooner, um, and he's reading his books. One of the books we see him with is a book of Michelangelo's work. Mm. And he quotes other poets and other things and who I don't necessarily know and haven't looked into, but I was wondering if it's explicitly the case in the story that his books are queer books, or at least I think it's implied by him having Michelangelo's work there, that he's spending that time like interacting with queer culture and like queer history and queer literature. And I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, the fact that he has to, like, go and find bookshops while uh, Roots is, you know, going to sleep with women Yeah, when they're in port. And, you know, he's sort of hunting around for these different books. Definitely, I think, also gives that implication that Mm. he's hunting around for specific books. So, yeah, in terms of the story, that's really all I've got, to be honest. Yeah. Is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up? No, like, I I do think I would tell you again for the third time to read it, because I think a lot of it does just, like, it would just be kind of me being like, I would like to read you this bit. Mm. And at Mm. some point, I've just read you most of it, so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I would just be yeah, repeating what I've said about the prose being really good, I think. Yeah. So now I want to talk a bit about the author. So Theodore Sturgeon was born Edward Hamilton Waldo in 1918, his name being changed after his mother's divorce and subsequent remarriage. I say this only because I assumed Theodore Sturgeon was a pen name, was briefly vindicated when I saw his birth name, and subsequently shocked to discover the change had nothing to do with his writing. Teddy Fish. Teddy Fish. Teddy Fish! Indeed. <laughs> but, sorry, I understand why he, cho- he changed his surname because his mum got married, but why did he change his first name? Just for uh, fun? Yeah, I think he just liked the name. Okay, like that's fair. I don't have a good source on that, by the okay. way. There's a, a bunch of the personal life information here. It comes largely from, like, a weird, like, blog site from the, like, 80s or 90s that mostly oh, talks about yeah. his work and, like, collected a bunch of, like, interview links and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. But the personal life section was very, like... I don't think this is relevant. I don't think we should talk about his personal life. Which, mm. like... Isn't how we do things here on Queer as Fact. Yeah. <laughs> what I do know about Sturgeon is that he sold his first story at age 20 and was a prolific author in the 1950s, at the time being the most anthologized English-language author alive. Oh, oh my god. god. I've literally never heard of this man before. And... I will get to that. So, The World Well Lost is not his only story touching on human sexuality. Garber and Paleo's Uranian Worlds, A Guide to Alternative Sexuality in Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, which is definitely a book I'm going back to at some point, (laughs) details six other stories of his featuring, briefly, a soft and gentle alien assumed to be gay. Aww. 
<laughs> soft and gentle. Yeah, I thought of you when I... (laughs) I thought of you when I read that description. Am I a soft and gentle alien, or am I noted for my love of soft and gentle aliens? What are you implying here? (laughs) Maybe both. (laughs) A story that argues the taboo against incest on the basis of birth defects in children is overblown, which... Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Yep. um, Let's move along. (laughs) Well, I'll let you make comments at the end. Okay. Um... A story featuring alien triads that possess humans and attempt to force their human hosts to exist in the same relationship arrangements they are used to. Well, that's immoral. A western where an aging cowboy writes a letter to his partner about a non-sexual experience with a woman, hinting at his feelings for men. That sounds incredible that sounds as well. good. A story where an alien who can shapeshift appears before a man and a woman as a person of the opposite gender and romances both of them. And a far-future utopia where only one neutral gender exists. Okay. Okay. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. There is uh, so much going on there. Obviously, what sci-fi is kind of like for is for like wrestling mm. with things like this. So yeah, I don't really yeah. see why incest and non-consensual polyamory should be off the table, depending on what the stories are saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he definitely seems to have been someone who wrote a lot. Of, I mean, he wrote a lot generally. There's a ton of short stories that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does seem to have been someone who was very interested uh, in the emotions of humans and in how they relate to each other and mm-hmm. how that could potentially change in a different societal context. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea of how like normal these sort of themes were for other like sci-fi writing in general at the time? Like, Was he notably someone who was doing something people weren't or was this just what like sci-fi was a hotbed of at the time and follow-up question if the latter can we do more episodes on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it does seem like sturgeon's writing was a little bit atypical at the time mm-hmm. um, although it does seem to have kind of pioneered a certain genre of science fiction writing mm-hmm. um, at least or popularized it is probably the better word you know for a point of comparison in a new york times article which discusses 50s sci-fi uh, Terence Rafferty mentions the prevalence of rational scientists trying to logic out the solution to the problems caused by aliens or technology as being kind of tropes of the time, as well as the heavily militarized nature of the genre, perhaps unsurprising in the aftermath of World War II and with the Cold War ongoing. And Rafferty also speaks of a genre founded on fear, citing films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is pretty notable then that Sturgeon offers a pretty potent counter, like The World Well Lost is about as scary as Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment where Grunty like has a gun and is gonna kill the aliens, but it's only a moment and he doesn't. Yeah. That's as dark Probably as Probably a gets. moment where like Tigger has a gun on one of the women. So Sturgeon himself appears to have been straight, uh as far as I could tell. I couldn't find any reference to homosexual feelings or relationships in his mm-hmm. life. He had a total of seven children across several marriages and other non marital relationships. But certainly his exploration of sexual themes was influential in the genre, and he had a general trend towards empathy and positive feelings for those whose sexuality or gender existed outside of societal norms. Several of those stories I described, the one with, like, neutral gendered people, they, like, bring a, like, man from our time into their time just to, like, see how he would react to their society, and he's kind of presented as being this kind of blundering Neanderthal. Oh, okay. So he's very, like, not subtle about how he judges, Mm -hmm. as I've kind of described earlier when talking about how he narrates Mm. the human society's Mm. bad reaction to the lover birds. I did find out his personal trademark was a Q with an arrow pointing through it, which apparently meant ask the next question, according to an interview he did with David D. Duncan in 1979. But also, that's a pretty wild coincidence in terms of queer symbolism. Yeah. (laughs) 
For us, the Q means queer. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that was just like really weird. I just was like, like, I was like, alarm bells going off when I first saw it. And then I'm like, oh, oh, I I guess. All right. (laughs) Finally, apropos of like really nothing, he's also the originator of Sturgeon's Law, which was originally called Sturgeon's Revelation. After being confronted one too many times with examples of crap sci-fi and asked to defend the genre when 90% of it was terrible, he responded that 90% of everything is crud, but that the best science fiction is as good as the best fiction in any field. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of similar, like, much wordier comebacks that Terry Pratchett has given when people repeatedly insist on asking, you're a really good writer, why don't you write serious fiction instead of this genre stuff? Oh, yeah. Um, I, like, obviously cannot verbatim just quote what he said. Yeah, reel off a Terry Pratchett quote, but, like, this, you should look it up. It's good. Yeah. yeah. It's a good slam dunk on people like that who don't take genre fiction seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in any case, it is clear that uh, Sturgeon was not publishing stories like The World Well Lost without some resistance in terms of, like, the mm. homophobic society that he existed in Mm. at the time. Uh, Samuel Delaney writes in his introduction to Uranian Worlds that when Sturgeon first pitched The World Well Lost to an editor, they not only rejected the story, but called up every other magazine editor in the field to tell them not to accept the story either. (laughs) Seems like none of your business, mate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So was he just publishing, like he was just selling stories on an individual basis to a variety of magazines, that's how his career works, just to check? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So he'd sell stories to magazines and then they would get published in anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes there would be collections of his work that would be published. But I think often, and this is kind of partially why he's not as well known now, is that the majority of his work was published in collections rather than under his own name. Okay. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Primarily. So you couldn't easily go out and buy, like, the Teddy collection that had all his works in it. Yeah. <laughs> the Teddy, the teddy collection. collection? Yeah. The Teddy Fish collection. That yeah. would be a great name for a, like, collection of his stories. It's not too late. <laughs> um, the logo would be, like, a Teddy, a fish, and a cue. <laughs> That's not any cue. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> But yeah, the story was published in the June 1953 edition of Universe, establishing it, according to Delaney, as one of the era's more sophisticated sci-fi periodicals. I think we should try and get our hands on some copies of Universe and see what other queer stuff is in there. Like, if they're willing to publish something so overtly gay and positive about it, I'd like to see what else they're doing. Same. Yeah. Sturgeon continued writing albeit less prolifically after 1961. I think literally one of his later collections, it's something like Theodore Sturgeon is still alive. It's like the name of the short story collection. Teddy Fish lives. Yeah. <laughs> and this included being recruited by Gene Roddenberry to write for Star Trek. Oh, hell oh, yeah. Oh, cool. He sounds born to write for Star Trek. So notably, Sturgeon wrote the episode that introduced the first appearance of several Vulcan customs, such as the mating ritual... Oh, did he write the Ponfar episode? He did write the Ponfar episode. Oh my god! (laughs) There's so much sexual tension in the Ponfar episode. That's not even the episode we're about to talk about. But yeah, it also introduces Live Long and Prosper and the Vulcan hand symbol. But perhaps more notable from the perspective of this podcast, however, he also wrote the episode Shore Leave, which features an interesting backrub scene. Oh, the backrub scene. Sci-fi blogger Jed Hartman describes it as follows. After an establishing shot of the Enterprise in orbit, we see Spock crossing the bridge to Kirk's command chair. He stands behind Kirk's right shoulder. Kirk, meanwhile, is messing with one of those ubiquitous high-tech clipboards. Next to him, on his left, is a red-shirted female yeoman. Kirk. Anything from the landing party? Spock. They should be sending up a report momentarily, Captain. Kirk. Grunts. Hands clipboard to the yeoman, who steps to her side, so she's standing behind his left shoulder. He puts his hand on his lower back. Spock. Something wrong? Kirk, 
a kink in my back. The yeoman, now standing behind him, reaches down and starts rubbing his lower back. Kirk, that's it. No, a little, a little higher, please. Hartman writes, I was kind of shocked. There's plenty of 1960s sexism on the show, but it would not have occurred to me that it's perfectly normal for a yeoman to rub Kirk's back on the bridge, so normal that she doesn't even have to speak and that nobody remarks on it. But then Spock raises an eyebrow and the scene goes on. Kirk, push, push hard. She does. Spock starts to step forward past the arm of Kirk's chair and into his field of view. Kirk, dig it in there, Mr. Spock. He sees Spock, who is clearly not the one rubbing his back. There's a long beat as Kirk realises what's going on. Kirk, thank you, Yemen. That's sufficient. She stops, and Kirk and Spock exchange a glance. Now, I'm not saying that that scene single-handedly launched a thousand ships. It lost one ship, though. But there's no way Sturgeon didn't know what he was doing there, and if I'd been a Trekkie in the 60s, I would definitely have been obsessing over it. Yeah, absolutely. I am so glad to get, like, somewhat proof that that was intentional. Which, like, yeah. you know, surely it had to be. But also, it's just kind of nice but yeah. also, to like, know, I guess, that that was kind of, like, positively meant in the era where Supernatural has just died. Yeah, like, <laughs> I've, I've seen that scene before. Like, I've seen, like, a video of it shared on Tumblr or something. And it's nice to know that it's not a homophobic joke. Mm. Yeah. Are we sure Teddy's not bisexual? Teddy may be bisexual. Yeah, I mean, no, we can't I'm be sure. I'm beginning to suspect Teddy's bisexual. <laughs> Obviously, we can't know. Yeah. As I said, there's just very little yeah. personal information about him out there. As far as I could tell, there's not like a prominent biography. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I would love it if there was. Yeah. Hint, mm-hmm. hint, biography authors of the world. Yeah. Um, do me a solid. I will I will do the research and do a history episode for once if we get one. <laughs> <laughs> I do want us to do an episode on early Kirk Spock fan fiction i think that's like genuinely a very mm. interesting thing that happened for the time yeah uh, yeah so, like all know, the fanzines like, and stuff consider this a taster yeah, yeah i was so delighted earlier this week when i was on the train with you and um we were kind of talking about this episode and then you mentioned kirk spock yeah <laughs> and i was like oh you've got a storm coming my friend yeah. oh my god <laughs> um yeah if you were in the kirk spock fandom in the like 60s or 70s or whatever get in touch and we'll interview you that would be great that would yeah. be amazing oh that'd be fantastic yeah sturgeon died in 1985 and seems to have been incredibly well regarded by his fellow authors while suffering a little from a lack of public attention you know, that most of his popular work was done in anthologies probably hurt any efforts to build a personal brand. So for an example of how well regarded he was by his fellow authors, in Kurt Vonnegut's work, um, the character of Kilgore Trout, <laughs> who appears in many um, of Vonnegut's stories as a sci-fi author who is beloved by the characters in uh, Vonnegut's work, but not commercially successful. Yeah. He's mm. explicitly based on oh. Theodore Sturgeon. Partially mm. just because Vonnegut found the idea of having a fish is the last name very funny why do you call him kilgore though he's not kill fish he's teddy fish <laughs> <laughs> kilgore is a wild first name for even being <laughs> not like how do you name someone that and be mocking the fact that their surname is a fish yeah. <laughs> oh. well yeah as as i have been i feel very effusive about throughout this i enjoyed this so much (laughs) and i really do think we should start like delving into niche genre fiction things from throughout like the 20th century Mm. and like earlier i guess but i don't you know sci-fi didn't start that much earlier Mm -hmm. if we say it started with like mary shelley i guess as sometimes people do um i also just thought it was really interesting like my i don't have like a huge uh exposure to sci-fi i was always more of like a fantasy kid and the sci-fi i have read that does deal with things like homophobia or racism and things like that 
in my experience has tended to deal with it much more in the kind of like depicting the future as a utopia where silly things like the color of someone's skin or their sexual preference just isn't an issue anymore and like kind of comments on it that way and so obviously that's not the case in this story so it's instead the case of like 50s homophobia is still in the future and this 50s writer is using that to like comment on it um and like i don't think that one approach is better or worse than the other i think they both like serve a purpose depending on the story but i just thought it was kind of like a neat dynamic to be like us as podcasters to be Mm. reading about the future to understand the past Mm. yeah Mm. yeah i was definitely thinking that as well and especially you know reading that story now almost 70 years Mm. after it was published Mm -hmm. And so to be kind of in the future that is described in Sturgeon's work, you know, I definitely think there's an honesty to the idea that that kind of bigotry will still mm. exist. Yeah. Obviously, we've come a long way, but it's, I think, yeah, as you said, it's important to have both visions. Mm. Like, those mm-hmm. utopian visions are really important and can be really freeing and fulfilling. Yeah. But having those visions where it's like, well, yeah, technology can improve, but that doesn't necessarily improve people's lives and people's societies. Hmm. And that's all for the episode. No big conclusion here, just a nice story about gay aliens and an author who maybe helped launch one of the more resilient ships in modern popular culture. (laughs) With that, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Alex. And I'm Eli. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more Queer as Fact on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are Queer as Fact on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. I'm so excited to have an excuse to post this Spock Kirk video on our social media. Oh, yes, that'd be great. (laughs) And if you really enjoyed this episode and would like to support our podcast, you can support us on Patreon, where you get perks such as the ability to vote on episodes. This episode topic was brought to you by our patrons, so if you'd prefer to have heard about hippos in Louisiana, sign up now to get your say next time. (laughs) We also have a Redbubble store if you'd like some Queer as Fact merchandise. And finally, if you want to support us in a non-financial way, we really appreciate reviews on any platform, uh, especially Apple Podcasts, it really helps us to reach a wider audience. If you're looking for links to any of that, they are in the episode description, but they are also on our website, queerasfact.com, where you can find source posts for our episodes. We respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. Queer as Fact will be back with another bonus episode, so you're getting a lot of content from us at the moment. (laughs) Um, So we'll be back on April 8th uh, when we will have a special interview. Alice, do you want to tell us about that? Me and Irene spoke to art historian Professor Roland Betancourt about his book Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender and Race in the Middle Ages. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.